Welcome to Blind Squirrel Macro the Pod. Squirrel here on the morning of Tuesday the 24th of October, Melbourne time. This podcast is our usual companion to the weekly newsletter which you can find for free at blindsquirrelmacro.com. The letter contains graphics, tons of charts and a multitude of links that I may refer to in the pod. It also contains our portfolio update and a review of our Acorn trade ideas. I've still not yet managed to master audio editing software and so record this in a single take, so please forgive any mumbles or stumbles. But before we start, a very quick message from Legal. Everything in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is categorically not investment advice. Before making any investment decisions, please don't listen to a cartoon rodent, talk to a financial advisor. Now this week, we're going to have a think about those fishy returns in private asset markets. Last Wednesday, your squirrel had a bit of a starstruck moment. One of my market heroes, Cliff Asnes, the founder of AQR, retweeted my post about his name check in an excruciating podcast that had just been released with the screenwriters of Dumb Money, the new film about the now legendary GameStop short squeeze. I promise to come back to this topic with a full Rotten Tomato-style analysis after I've actually seen it. It's out, out down here later this week. But judging by the trailer, it appears to be going for a worst possible take award as it deals with the meme stock frenzy of early 2021. Roaring Kitty, aka Keith Gill, is a folk hero for our times, and evil short-selling hedge funds, well, just boo. Not a hint of nuance. But I guess that's what sells movie tickets. Anyway, back to Cliff. I'm a huge fan of his long-standing campaign to highlight some of the, well, shall we call them peculiarities of private asset markets. As a highly successful hedge fund guy himself, Cliff could hardly be described as a financial justice warrior. That makes it all the more reason to listen to closely to what he has to say when he's talking about his fellow fund management neighbours in leafy Greenwich, Connecticut. The focus of Cliff's criticism of private asset markets is a phenomenon for which he coined the phrase volatility laundering. By that he means the industry's misrepresentation of the risk and volatility embedded in their investment portfolios. You see, these guys get to mark their own homework when it comes to valuation. Cliff published a paper in the Institutional Investor magazine earlier this year, which he called, Why Does Private Equity Get to Play Make-Believe with Prices? I quote, My criticism has been narrowly focused on PE's lack of mark-to-market valuations and some of the implications this brings. The illiquidity and non-marking were once implicitly acknowledged appropriately as a bug, but are now clearly sold as a feature. The whole piece is wonderfully written and linked to in the note. Now, you do not have to spend too long strolling through the marketing literature from Big P and its enablers at the investment banks and asset allocators before coming across some pretty disingenuous stuff. I I, I stumbled across the absolute Mona Lisa of chart crimes from buyout giant KKR on LinkedIn the other day. It was a chart that plotted long-term returns for various asset classes like stocks and bonds against historic annualized volatility as a way to supposedly highlight the superior risk and return characteristics of private equity funds. Fair enough, except for the fact that they fudged the numbers. 
They took out the bad prints. Well, actually, de-emphasize was their word. What they did was to strip out all of the valuation and volatility for private equity during the period of the 2000, 2008, 2009 financial crisis. You simply cannot do that. Anyway, the comments on LinkedIn were typically restrained. Try posting that on Twitter. It would not end well. So the PE industry pitch is super clear. We can offer superior returns without that annoying thing called volatility, which you have to endure with your liquid investments in the stock and bond markets. I might add here that the veil of private markets also enables degrees of financial leverage, a multiplier of returns that would simply not be tolerated within publicly traded companies of an equivalent size. Vidad's Daniel Rasmussen had a much quoted article in 2018 on this topic, and it was superb on countering this big PE narrative. Back then he wrote, risk and return are generally related. And financial products that offer high returns at a low risk are likely to deliver on neither promise. This smoothing of returns would not be possible were it not the case that it seems that the clients of these large funds, the big pensions and endowments, seem almost complicit in the process. These big institutions operate in a world where low volatility is valued over superior returns, and they ignore how either calculation is put together. Now, followers of The Squirrel will know that I've been pressing on this topic for a while. It was, it was at the core of our, thought sheet, uh, our short thesis on, on Goldman Sachs. The Alphaville, the Alphaville team at the Financial Times have also been red hot on the case. I love those guys. They're basically the shitposting department of the FT. I linked to a piece of theirs in my note called The Volatility Laundering, Return Manipulation and Phony Happiness of Private Equity. It's linked to in the note, but I wanted to pull out its superb and a little bit sinister final line. Maybe investors in private equity funds are actually in on the joke rather than being the butt of it. Now, the squirrel does wonder about this last point. It sure makes everyone's life a whole load easier. And there are even perks. Bloomberg did a recent investigation into the luxury junkets for members of PE firms' so-called limited partnership advisory councils which often contain senior public officials. It was actually quite an eye-opener. Eye Away from conventional private equity and venture capital, the recent chatter has been all about the new new thing. That is, of course, the private credit revolution. Steve Schwartzman, Blackstone's founder and arguably the best salesman on the planet, was quoted at a recent conference saying the following about private credit. If you can earn 12%, maybe 13% on a good day in senior secured bank debt, what else do you want to do in life? If you're living in a no-growth economy and somebody can give you that with almost, wait for this, no prospect of loss, that's about the best thing you could do. Well, I'm going to file that comment under quotes that are very likely to age poorly. Back with Rasmussen. He was very, and very unsurprisingly, early on to this theme too. Dan is ex-Bain private equity and also worked at Bridgewater, the big macro fund. So he's very much a poacher turned gamekeeper type and he does not pull his punches. In early 2020, so ahead of COVID and some of the worst private credit excesses that we've seen, he penned a piece titled, If High Yield Was Oxy, i.e. Oxycontin, that opioid, Private Credit is Fentanyl. I linked to it in the note but wanted to pluck out the zinger of a sentence. But private credit funds think that they know better. 
They pitch institutional investors higher yields, lower default rate, and of course exposure to private markets, private being synonymous in some circles with wisdom, long-term thinking, and perhaps even a superior form of capitalism. Wow. Call me a cynical old rodent, but I suspect that much of this new private credit is simply a fig leaf for good old-fashioned extend and pretend. I'm talking about sister private credit funds providing the financing to related private equity deals that a more transparent capital market might normally shun, or at least price differently. Anyway, this private credit market is growing like a weed. Robin Wigglesworth wrote a very funny piece back in July called The Private Credit Golden Moment. Again, it's linked in the letter. It contains some hilarious charts. It turns out that return profiles in private credit can be smoothed out in the same way that KKR was massaging the volatility of its equity returns. And the real truth of private returns is just beginning to show up in the returns of some of the big endowments. Now, it's funny to joke about this, but guess who owns a truckload of this stuff? It's not just those grand old universities like Harvard and Yale. It's the public pension funds of Californian teachers and Michigan firefighters too. I think that ultimately this is the vector via which private asset markets and the asset gathering giants behind them become political targets and the industry starts to get unstuck. There's also now real competition for assets from the conventional capital markets. There have to be more than just a few pension fund CIOs right now looking at almost 6.5% yields on high-grade corporate bonds and wondering why they're taking all the extra risk and illiquidity in private credit. Next up, the third leg of the private asset stool, real estate, or unlisted REITs, real estate investment trusts. Now, this is certainly not breaking news, but by now most people have heard the truly incredible phenomenon whereby private REITs are apparently outperforming their publicly listed counterparts that broadly own similar assets. Pull the other one, it's got bells on it. Blackstone's B-REIT is the largest private REIT on the planet and it's already gated for investor redemptions, just as it only looks like we're at the very beginning of the distress cycle in commercial real estate. Eek. This week, um, well, rather, last week, rather, we, we closed out our short position in Goldman Sachs. Now, exit timing was linked to October op- options expiries rather than any change in our views. We had chosen to express our short private asset theme via Goldman because we felt that their investment banking flow business would feel the heat of the private asset industry downturn well before it would hit the earnings of the private asset giants like Blackstone or KKR. Now this calls age pretty well as the investment banking fee slump has continued throughout this year with activity levels, according to Bloomberg, down nearly 40% over the last seven quarters versus the previous seven. Goldman's shares, down over 11% year-to-date, have massively underperformed its clients, as well as the broader market. KKR and Blackstone are up almost 20 and 30% respectively over the same period. However, we are beginning to ask ourselves whether or not now is the time for a more direct approach to tackle this theme. As part of Goldman's earnings call last Tuesday, the bank announced that it was pulling off the band-aid and writing down its commercial real estate office exposure by a whopping 50%. Did they just pass on the relay baton of pain to their clients? 
I imagine that this Goldman announcement may have caused a number of private real estate executives to spit out their coffee that morning. At a time when conventional debt markets appear to be gluing up, leaving only private markets open, if they really are, and when the industry is going to extreme lengths to delay moments of valuation truth via the use of NAV loans and continuation funds. Saw this in Monday's FT. Private equity, I quote, private equity firms are also increasingly using continuation funds, which involves a firm selling an asset from an older fund, wait for it, to one of its newer funds. Investors in the funds are typically offered the chance to cash out during these asset transfers. I should hope so. A recent survey of 200 UK-based PE executives found that continuation funds are favoured as a better option for funds looking for an exit rather than an IPO or the auction of an asset. I don't know what to say. In other news, the Pope has a very large balcony and bears like to do their business in the woods. Honestly, this approach to creative structuring smacks a little bit of desperation and has echoes of the, of the financial shenanigans that we saw in the mortgage market ahead of 2008. The squirrel thinks we're getting close to a time that it's safe to go after big PE. Historically, I've argued against betting against, I argue against betting against the likes of Blackstone, KKR and Carlyle, as it's too much of a bet against broader equity markets in the absence of a true specific catalyst. The asset gathering machinery of this group has pivoted effortlessly from private equity to private debt and real estate. Underlying fund performance, net of fees, seems to have taken a firm backseat versus the crude accumulation of AUM, assets under management. Just on a personal note, I've got plenty of friends working in private equity. Good, honest, hardworking people. I really hope that this doesn't come over as anything other than objective. I'm categorically not calling out bad faith here. To be honest, it's human nature. I was at a presentation given by the CIO of a very senior public sector wealth fund last week. When questioned as to why private equity continued to get the big allocations, he was really candid. And I'm paraphrasing his view here. He said that the big pension funds are very siloed. All of them have these jumbo specialist private equity teams that love doing private equity deals. It's all they do and they don't and they want to keep or at least, or, or even grow their share of the funds, the funds' assets. All these guys love the general partners at KKR or wherever that they've selected, and they chat regularly with the investor relations teams at those shops, who, by the way, are probably the most effective salespeople in the world. Sure, allocators will talk to them about their nervousness about valuations. And the response will always be, yeah, well, everyone else is doing these crazy deals, but we didn't, and we don't, and our portfolio is doing great. I think the real problem is that even at the PE shops, they really do believe their own narrative. And then it boils down to a simple herd effect and, this, and the fear of zagging when the rest of the allocator community is zigging. Anyway, barring the most recent correction in the last few days, the share prices of big PE have certainly held up exceptionally well versus the investment banks that serve them. But are we now really perhaps nearing one of the true catalysts that I alluded to a moment ago? This, this is the power that big PE holds in the corridors of power. In fact, P's done so well in Washington that they're even employing a little bit of vertical integration by buying lobbying firms. 
this reminds me of the Victor Kayam ad from my childhood. Do you remember the one? It's the one where he talks about his wife giving him an, an electric razor that so impressed him that he bought the company. Big P even has one of its leading alumni running the Federal Reserve. Chair Powell was a partner at the Carlyle Group. Anyway, rapidly rising interest rates are like kryptonite for these private markets, and the cracks are clearly starting to show now. With new fundraising activities stalling and exits slowed by an almost non-existent IPO market, it's tough not to expect a barrage of bad headlines coming its way towards the se sector as soon as the credit cycle truly turns. The proliferation of pain delay mechanisms I just mentioned suggests that we cannot be that far away from marking some of the industry's excesses to market. The point at which these losses are realised in the public pension funds of teachers and firefighters could trigger a fall from grace for big PE in Washington. The meteoric rise and fall of FTX's Sam Bankman-Fried is a live example of how quickly big donors can lose their friends on Capitol Hill. For an industry as, with as many problems as big PE to be outperforming broader equity markets the way they have been recently just feels completely unsustainable to the squirrel. And there's more. Last week's headline that CDC was about to launch its Amsterdam IPO certainly caught my eye. Having seen the dismal debuts of ARM Semiconductor, Instacart and Birkenstock, surely this is a triumph of hope over experience. I for one remember very clearly how Blackstone, Blackstone snuck out its jumbo $4 billion IPO in, let me check my notes when, yes, June of 2007. Yep. History has a tendency to rhyme. What is perhaps even more remarkable is that the biggest beast of the private asset jungle would seem to be the one that's in deepest into the stuff that's going most wrong. Expect a new acorn on this topic in the coming days. In its title, I'm drawing inspiration from the legendary gangster in HBO's The Wire. It's going to be called Taking Down Omar. If you come at the king... You best not miss. Well, the squirrel will try his very best. That's all for this week on the pod. In the written report, we also have a full Acorn review covering energy, offshore oil services stocks, some agriculture updates, DoorDash, Mercedes, Coinbase and Uranium, as well as our usual portfolio update. Thank you for listening. Please find out more about me at blindsquirrelmacro.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Squirrel Macro. See you next week. Squirrel out.